Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You, bringing you our very latest podcast and vlogcast with all the news that's exciting and different, which you're not probably going to read in your papers uh, or on the t- see on the TV or here on the radio. They just don't report this stuff. But it's pretty important and it matters to you and your health, which is why we're here and why we do report about it. So without further ado, let's go to our first item. Now, we're all very familiar with the idea that Facebook, Google, all the rest, sell our data, pass on our data in order to get advertisers to send us targeted adverts. We all know this particular game, but what we may not realise is that when you go on these very big health websites, by which I do not mean what doctors don't tell you, but other more conventional sites like WebMD, to name but one, the information that you're leaving, so when you, for example, you're searching for a drug or uh, more information about a condition, that information is still being passed on to pharmaceutical companies and the like. Now, this all came about because the Financial Times, a national newspaper in the UK, carried out a secret under-the-wraps research into these sites, and they looked at about 100 different uh, health websites, the big ones, WebMD, Healthline, Baby Centre and Bupa, to name but four, and they were not only capturing sensitive data, such as symptoms, the drugs you were taking, even menstrual cycles, believe it or not, and they were passing it on so that you then could be targeted with this sensitive data for advertising. And um, obviously it's done without people's permission, which actually goes against the current legal requirements in Europe. And uh, they're using cookies without permission to do this. Um, so, for example, uh, the uh, putting in a drug name into a website such as drugs.com, we're going to Google's advertising for arm called DoubleClick, and uh, heart disease uh, symptoms were being passed on the British Heart Foundation. And whilst uh, information par- uh, uh, keyed into sites like Bupa and Healthline, we're going on to specialist advertising firms such as Scorecard and OpenX. So this means, so if you're suddenly finding as you go around the web that you're being followed with adverts, with dealing specifically with your health problem, with drugs you could be taking or indeed are taking, well, now you know how it's come about. Um, So it's, I mean, of the 100 sites the FT analysed, 78 were doing this, were passing on the data without anyone's permission. This is highly sensitive private information, which you would have thought would have stayed with the health site, but apparently not. Well, I'm not surprised because let's just join the dots here. Um, Both Google and Amazon have purchased pharmaceutical companies. Mm. Uh, They are looking for people and gathering data themselves for people to be participating in uh, new drug trials. And this kind of information is also very useful and lucrative to sell on to uh, third-party companies. For instance... If you have a musculoskeletal problem, for instance, um, and you happen to put that stuff down, you're looking for some sort of solution, um, don't be surprised if you not only have ads online, but you get things like 
um, information about mobility sent through as direct mail. Mm. So that's the kind of thing. They've got this data. They can sell it on to anybody and any kind of company that's looking for these kinds of lists. So this really begs the question, Brian, of Mm. antitrust issues, Mm. you know, companies that are monopolies, that are breaking the law in terms of tech um, information. And I'm sure that laws will be passed. This will be, this was shocking and outrageous. But the bottom line is, be careful where you leave your data. Mm. If you put it on any mainstream sites, it's most mm. likely being tracked. Mm. And it all comes down to the the circle, the inner circle of big pharma mm. and how that is widening and widening. Yeah, and it's part of a bigger problem, isn't it? Because last year, we saw Google fundamentally change its algorithm. And quite literally overnight, I think from August the 1st last year, Alternative health information became almost impossible to find. So when once you would have seen it on page one or two of your search results, on August the 1st last year, it was down to page 48 or, or beyond. So you just weren't seeing this information. And that's part of a bigger picture. On that front, you know, you can use other sites which are aren't using this um weighted algorithms such as DuckDuckGo, where you'll see a much more impartial and a fairer uh, results of the things you're keying in. So you will find out more about alternative health remedies by using DuckDuckGo. But yeah, whatever, that that's only the, the, the front page of it. But once you get to the website, be very careful because, you know, as we just said, these top 100 health sites are holding onto your data, and they are passing it on. So even if you use DuckDuckDo, eventually you go to the website, and then again, you know, your your data could be passed on to third parties. And I, you know, and I th- I'm sure it doesn't just end there, Lena, because I think that um, you know the FT could only track it thus far. But you know, beyond that, I would imagine we're seeing this data being passed on for possible drug trials, clinical information, you name it, which mm-hmm. uh, which helps the drug companies develop more products and to target people. So I'm sure that also is going on. Yeah, uh, and now that Google is mm-hmm. in is part of Big Pharma yeah. essentially. Yeah. This is a wonderful mine of information that can be used for all sorts of things yeah. with conventional medicine. Mm-hmm. And because it's downgrading holistic medicine, um, this becomes a kind of virtuous circle for mm. handing around data. Mm. So do be careful where you leave your information, what you search for, mm. and go to places like DuckDuckGo that are not tracking you. Well, billions and billions of dollars have exchanged hands in the last two years. New 5G licenses have been issued, and indeed, the network is starting to roll out. I mean, there are some pockets of resistance. We're seeing some cities refusing to allow the 5G network to be installed. Uh, But in the main, we're starting to see this happen. I mean, the products are already coming out. The the phones are already prepared for the 5G. And so it's going to start. And it's going to start because there's money. You know, there's loads and loads of money tied up in it. And the problem is, once the genie is out of the bottle... You can't put it back. And the problem is no one actually does know how safe the new 
5G network is. Because as as we, you know, Lynn will tell us a bit later, I mean, it operates with a different technology from any of the other uh, networks that have gone before it. And um, there has been an increasing call from scientists to say, look, let's stop this until we're absolutely sure it's safe. 200 uh, scientists from around the world have joined up to sign a, a petition urging governments to please find out the safety of these networks before they are just rolled out around the planet, because once they're rolled out, it's too late to stop it. And um, there's a uh, quite a leading scientist who just joined the chorus, a guy called Joel Moscovich from the um, University of California at Berkeley, who's, who's saying it really is a case of us flying blind, that we have no idea and of course, we don't have an idea because no one's tested for this. We, I mean, he's done a lot of work on the earlier iterations of the mobile cell phone networks, and he's found worrying signs that long-term use can, can cause head and neck tumours. And uh, he's very concerned that this even more powerful network could have a much more damaging effect and, and after, on, you know, much quicker timescales than we've seen with the 4G. You know, and again, he's, he's urging the, the EU approach, of a precautionary approach, that you find out first before you do it, rather than trying to stop it once it's out there. Because once it is, I don't think you can. But, you know, again, because of money, Lynn, you know, it's hard to see him or the other scientists being listened to. No, absolutely. And, you know, even though it's called 5G for fifth generation technology, that would sort of imply that we're just moving on a stage from 3G or 4G. But in fact, it is a completely new technology that uses a completely different frequency. Um, it's a much higher frequency uh, than the ordinary 3 and 4G. And it's measured in millimeters, not centimeters, as the older technology is. Um, so you need a lot, you basically need a lot more of it. It enables, you know, a stadium of people to all be on the same um, web page and to get, or to get a signal from their phone. Um, it, it allows much more, uh, much faster, uh, uploading and a lot of the things that have been complaints in the past about 3 and 4G are sorted with 5G. But the problem is this is much higher radiation. This is now essentially a tsunami of radiation. Mm. So we know we can't count on governments to keep us safe. But happily, we are featuring as a cover story in our February issue of What Doctors Don't Tell You, February 2020, uh, a story about how to protect yourself from EMFs. And there's loads you can do to just reduce your own exposure. Um, everything from putting your phone in a Faraday bag to block the radiation, to using certain kinds of simple equipment to measure levels and also to stop Wi-Fi from being a constant source of radiation in your house and in your environment. Mm. So you don't have to walk around in aluminum foil. There are loads of simple ways to keep you safe. So do check out our February issue. Yeah, that's good. And, uh, and it's worth pointing out that although it is much more powerful, uh, 5G actually transmits over much shorter distances. And so it, it has a weaker transmission 
length, if you like, and which means that mean there can be many, many more masts being put up in streets all over the place. And uh, you know, it, it's a tough one for uh, the local residents. What do you do about this? Well, it's interesting. We did encounter this ourselves a couple of years ago where they wanted to put loads of masts around where we lived. And you, you can't get it on safety grounds because they will not entertain that as an argument because it, they say it's not been proven and therefore it is not unsafe. So you can't, it's not, uh, not unsafe. So you can't argue on that basis. So what I did, I plowed through local planning regulations and it's something to bear in mind. I don't know if it would apply where you are because if you don't live in the UK, but still check this out. We got them on an area called street furniture. <laughs> now, street furniture, there can only be so much street furniture. I don't know what the term is in the States, but we call it street furniture. There can only be so much street furniture on a pavement because, or a sidewalk because people have to get round it. So, with, you know, you've got mums with their push chairs, you've got older people in their mobility scooters, you name it. People have to be able to get up and down the sidewalk or the pavement. And <clears throat> there has to be street furniture at a minimum not at a maximum. So if you've got lots of masks, that would suggest to me that street furniture is at a maximum. And on that basis, the planning committee will listen to you and may well reject the installation of more masks. So just on a pragmatic level, that can be a way to counter this, even if they're not going to accept the safety issue. And we also, you know, we organized a mm. local residence brigade mm. to do petitions, mm. to, to hand this out outside of churches and schools. Mm. Uh, we built a, uh, a mock version of what it would look like and put it on the street so people mm. would see how difficult it was. We put posters around, mm. you know, we did all kinds of stuff mm. and we just created a giant um, protest in our just our little neighborhood mm. so that our local council had to listen. We're all getting older. And when we do, we are more prone to some of the problems of aging, including unsteadiness and falls and fractures and you name it. And, you know, we've said this a lots of times and there's a new report come out that sort of agrees with it now that... Actually, in some cases, it's got absolutely nothing to do with aging, but an awful lot to do with the prescription drugs that older people are being prescribed for any number of conditions. But what these drugs are doing is actually increasing the chance of a fall or a fracture. And they're even called fads. They're the most common fracture-associated drugs. And researchers have had a look at the 21 most uh, most uh, commonly prescribed fads to discover just how bad they are. And it is pretty bad. Um, taking even one fad, even one of these drugs, doubles the risk of a fracture, and the risk increases exponentially for every other uh drug that you take. So taking two triples the risk and taking three quadruples the risk of a fall and or a fracture. And uh, the effect is, whatever those numbers are, it's magnified, it's doubled if you already have osteoporosis where you are more prone to fracture 
Anyway, um, the most common and the most dangerous combinations were the opioids and sedatives. So you've taken an opioid and a sedative, you are more than three to four times more likely to fall over and suffer a fracture than someone who doesn't take these drugs, even if that person is the same age as you. And opioids and directives, which of course are very commonly prescribed to older people, and opioids and PPIs, for indigestion, proton pump inhibitors for indigestion. These are the lethal combinations of the fad drugs, but there are 21 in all, and they're very commonly prescribed. Um, the, the researchers said that even their research panel found two and a half million people who were being given one or more of these drugs. So goodness knows how many people actually are taking these and they are for you know, common problems associated with aging. But actually, it seems to me, are actually the cause of the problems associated with aging rather than helping them. So what do you think then? Well, we're finding that in other areas too. Mm. Um, you know, older people have an average of what, seven, mm -hmm. seven drugs. Yep. And a lot of the issues that we see around dementia mm. are also being caused mm. by, you know, just this mm. overprescription of drugs and also polypharmacy, you know, the interaction of these drugs together. So it's not surprising that this is also a problem where they are causing falls and, or they are causing fractures because mm. they are making your bones thinner. Mm. So, you know, this is just more well, it, evidence. It just escalates, doesn't it? Because if you are already on a drug that increases your chance of a fall and you fall, the doctor then says, well, that's because you're getting older. So you'll probably prescribe yet another drug to mm. try and stop you from falling. And it's the same, as you say, with... Um, you know, dementia or memory loss or incontinence, uh, all these other issues associated with aging are so often actually more to do with a drug that the older person is taking. So, you know, whether you, you this is something that directly affects you or if you have an older relative who this could affect, do check this out because it's very likely to be the actual culprit. Well, everyone knows omega-3 supplements are really good for your heart. But since about 2013, doctors and therapists have been a little bit reluctant in recommending them. Why? Because a research paper came out that year which said that, in fact, they could cause prostate cancer. Yes, omega-3 supplements could cause prostate cancer. So, therefore, they have been rather um, so reticent, shall we say, in recommending them for heart problems. So anyway, some researchers at an institute called the Intermountain Healthcare Heart Institute have taken another look at this. And they tested 87 prostate cancer patients for levels of DHA and EPA, which are two of the common fatty acids found in omega-3, and found that they didn't have any of those problems, and they also compared them with 149 healthy controls, and there was no link whatsoever between omega-3 and prostate cancer. But then they said, okay, well, let's establish whether these supplements really can help with the heart. So again, they took a look at 894 patients with no history of heart disease, and um, then, but they had actually carried out a coronary angiography and found that of those, 40% actually had severe heart disease and didn't know it. But what was interesting was 
Their DHA and EPA measures were also measured, and those with the highest level had the lowest risk of heart attack or stroke, although they already had signs of serious heart conditions. So it seemed that um, omega-3 couldn't prevent heart disease, but what it was doing was protecting you from its worst excesses. So in other words, you may indeed have a heart problem, but you probably won't die from it if you take the supplements because it gives you that protection, which is interesting, isn't it? Well, what I think is really interesting also is um, now that we have the equipment to measure things, Mm. so we measure all kinds of things and Mm. we find abnormalities. Mm. This may be a situation where Mm. a lot of old people have these Mm. kinds of blockages where they look like they're blockages, but they won't die of heart Mm. disease if they have a a very healthy diet with a lot of omega threes, you know, as they probably did in older times, Mm. you know. Um, But because we can measure it, it's like looking at MRI scans. Um, They find among, you know, some very good athletes that they have terrible abnormal MRI scans, Mm. but they have no clinical evidence of it, you know, possibly because they're doing all this good exercise. So um, it's very interesting. A lot of it has to do with the testing, but also the demonization of um, of supplements. Mm. This is not the first study mm. to try to link a very healthy supplement with some sort of disease. Mm. I mean, they tried that with vitamin E, um, which mm. is, you know, a fantastic supplement. They've mm. tried it with a number vitamin A, a number of them, um, trying to um, trying to discredit these as supplements mm. and basically saying, no, you get enough through your food and take drugs instead. Mm. You know, this is all the, the long arm of the pharmaceutical industry, sadly. And, mm. you know, no one should believe that omega-3s are anything but a fantastic mm. supplement, a mm. fantastic aid to your health. Well, winter is upon us. And with it, the flu season. And wherever you go, you see posters for get the new flu vaccine and all the rest of it to protect yourself. Well, there's another thing you can do, and that's adopt the keto diet. Because researchers have discovered that people who eat the keto diet seem to kickstart their immune system in such a way that it combats the flu virus and uh, reduces your risk, A, of getting it, and if you do, of it being very virulent. And um, it seems to do with the um, T-cells in our immune system, which respond to the keto diet in particular. And... um, the um, the T cells, which are also known as gamma delta cells, didn't no one thought had anything to do with the immune system's response to influenza. But in fact, they have a principal role to play in combating the flu, which uh, Yale University researchers have only just discovered. But um, they say that it was uh, it was a test on mice, and we're always a bit dubious about tests on animals, but it is quite. Uh, compelling that uh, those who were fed on the keto uh, actually responded well when they were also in, injected with the flu virus. And um, as everyone probably knows, the keto diet is high on the proteins such as meat, fish, poultry, and non-starchy veg, and a bit low on the 
on the carbs. But interesting, isn't it, Lynn, that uh, with flu around the corner, that this could be as effective as the flu vaccine. Well, uh, probably a lot more, too, as we know, the flu vaccine oftentimes doesn't work because it's working Mm. on last year's flu um, um, strain. But this isn't surprising looking at all of the evidence about um, the keto diet. Mm. So many practitioners hail the keto diet as a fantastic healing um, regime. Certainly Dr. Sarah Myhill over here in the UK, many doctors in the US um, have found that using a ketogenic diet, even a friendly, kinder, gentler one, which we've just written about in What Doctors Don't Tell You, it'll be coming out, I believe, in January, um, is, you know, is helpful for not only the flu, but a lot of serious illnesses too. It's really helpful in reversing it. And it just goes to show that high starch um, vegetables, grains, sugar, all of these things just convert into sugar essentially Mm. in the body. And that is the major culprit for so much illness. Yeah. I mean, the keto diet, of course, is is about fat burning. And that seems to be the the, the missing part of this whole story because because it encourages fat burning, it seems to then stimulate these T cells into operation so it's so it's a happy byproduct of the diet is it also happens to fight flu yes. um, which is fascinating it kickstarts this pro- whole process off uh, yes and it's it, good it's good for as you say it's good for lots of other diseases too and um yeah i mean and, and i think you know the only nuance i'd have say about it is that yes it is it is quite a radical diet in as much as it is, it is so low in the carbs whereas a more nuanced diet such as the Montignac, for example, really specifies, well, not all carbs are bad and that they look at those that are quick to generate sugar, which they eliminate from the diet, but other carbs, which are slow burners, which do not produce insulin and sugars quite so quickly, are allowed. So whether or not the the diet such as that would have a similar effect on flu, we don't know because it wasn't tested. But it's um, you know, if you do find the keto diet too radical, you know, diets like the Montignac are a little bit kinder and gentler and may have much of the benefit of the keto. Yes, and even the the people who invented the South Beach diet have come up with a kinder and gentler one, which is the one that's going to be in what doctors don't tell you. Mm. That is a little bit easier to follow is not quite as strict mm. where you don't have to be in what they call ketosis mm. where you're demonstrating that you you know you are burning fat all the time mm. but that is essentially you know what you're mm. doing a good chunk of the time and also you're just eliminating those high sugars mm. which are the things that most people burn for fuel yeah yeah. And I suppose you know, the, the single biggest advantage, as you alluded earlier, Lynn, to the immune system over a flu vaccine is that the immune system is a living thing, is hunting down a living virus in, in your system, whereas a flu th- vaccine is essentially dead and is a model of last year's virus, which by the time this year comes around has mutated something like 21 billion mm-hmm. times. And so the flu vaccine 
doesn't lock into the current virus too well, whereas your immune system being a living thing is adapting and changing and matches the living virus that's inside you. So lots of benefits to have your immune system fight the flu over having the vaccine, I would imagine. But look, I think we've come to the end of this week's uh, broadcast, vlogcast, whatever. Um, so thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. I'm Brian Hubbard and look forward to serving you again very soon. And I'm Lynn McTaggart and enjoy this month and the holidays. <laughs>